serve love and kindness as well. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Diamond and Paula. Good morning. As Paula said, my name is Nate Amerson, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to speak today. Uh, Anthony out of town for a couple of weeks, so he's got guest speakers lined up. Um, the next two weeks, we'll be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I'll be followed by Tim Warnock next week. And then, of course, we have Mother's Day and the special conference speaker following after that. Uh, so I am grateful for the opportunity today. Um, I just want to say again, do, do think and pray about supporting the Compassion Ministries because what they do for kids all over the world is really, really a cool ministry. Um, and the Lord Jesus says that if you care for the very least, you're caring for him. You're giving that, that love and you're giving glory to God himself in that way. So that, that's just something to think about. So... In exploring the Sermon on the Mount, like I said, it's just a, a two-part series, and we're looking particularly at the end of chapter 6 and chapter 7. Um, I have no idea what direction Tim's going to go with those particular verses next week, um, and it'll probably be very different than what we talk about today, but that's fine. We're highlighting uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount, which is something that we actually do on an annual basis, or at least on, on a recurring basis, is looking at the Sermon on the Mount. So in looking at the Sermon on the Mount today, we are going to actually start in the book of Isaiah. And you might say, well, the Sermon on the Mount isn't in Isaiah. The Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew and Luke. Um, and you're right. You would be 100% correct. At the same time, what we see with Jesus' ministry is that there is a unique tie-in to the book of Isaiah in a number of places. The prophecies that Isaiah presents that God gives him special words for his particular time and place in history, speaking to the people of Israel, speaking to the exiles, those are also prophetic words that carry over and have meaning in another time and place and context, and we see that really particularly in the life and ministry of Jesus. The, um, the words of the suffering servant, which you find in the book of Isaiah, those clearly point directly to what Jesus did, his work and ministry on the cross. Um, Jesus' birth is prophesied in the book of Isaiah. And when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, he goes to the temple, he goes to the synagogue, and reads the passage of the day, which is taken directly from the book of Isaiah. And then he even says to his audience, today these words have been fulfilled in your sight clearly pointing to the words of the prophet as fulfilling his own, his own ministry and his own place in the world at that time. So a unique tie-in in a number of places to the book of Isaiah and to the ministry of Jesus. In Isaiah 33 and verses 21 and 22, Isaiah is speaking of promise, of upcoming uh, deliverance from God for the people of Israel deliverance from exile, deliverance from their oppression. And he's referring to the restored cities of Zion and Jerusalem. And he says, in these restored cities, there the Lord will be our mighty one. It will be like a place of broad rivers and streams. No galley with oars will ride them. 
no mighty ship will sail them. And he's talking about warships. So he's saying where there's no place for warships, it means there's a time of peace in the restored cities of Zion and Jerusalem. And then, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, it is he who will save us. And so in this way, I want to apply those prophetic words and look forward into Matthew chapter 7 and the Sermon on the, on the Mount and the ministry of Jesus. Where in Matthew 7 and verse 1, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So here, clearly we see the reference to a judge in the book of Isaiah, where the Lord will be our judge. But we see kind of a, an inversion of that application where Jesus says, do not judge. So we have to unpack that a little bit because what Jesus is talking about here is not the office of a judge. And that's what in Isaiah, he's talking about those three offices of the judge and the lawgiver and the king. So those are like particular appointed positions, if you would think of it that way. What Jesus is talking about here is he's really talking about criticizing. Um, and that's where the word judge, you see, has some different meanings in this particular context. Because Jesus himself actually acted as a judge, and he confronted the Pharisees, and he showed them that they were not living God's standards. They were living their own standards. They were living man's standards. And they were making, they were basically making living the regulation of the law almost like a religion in itself. They were almost worshiping the adherence of like the, the very nitinoid little pieces of the law. Um, and Jesus confronts them, and in that way, he actually acts as a judge and says, you're not doing the right thing. You are not living the way that God wants you to live. And so Jesus himself actually acts in, that, in sort of that office, that appointed position as a judge. And so that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is being critical of each other. And I don't even mean critical in the sense of, like, you would say, I'm, I'm applying a critical look to this process or to this system. And that would be where you really analyze something, you really take it apart, you think, how can we make this better? How can we do this, this better? Um, we, we say that that's being critical, right? Or, or critical thinking in a way. So we're, I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about criticizing. And that's what Jesus is saying, is when you run down your friends, people in the church, when you talk badly about them behind their back, when you criticize them, what you are doing is you are exercising the sin of pride because you are saying, well, obviously, I would do things differently than that person does. Or you, or you say things like, um, oh, I just can't believe they let their kids do that, right? That is, that is that being judgmental or that being criticizing of other people. That's what Jesus is really pointing out. So it's important to note that this verse does not mean don't hold other people to God's standards. That's not what Jesus is saying because Jesus himself held others to God's standards. So it is okay to go to your fellow believer and say, are you living God's standards in your life? That is not criticizing. 
Criticizing is saying, oh, I just can't believe they do that. Or I just can't believe what the pastor decided to do. They had French toast instead of bagels. Or, right? It's a silly example, but whatever the case might be, is that we often exercise that sin of pride and think that we're better than somebody else because, and we don't even know what the situation might be in their life, but we're critical about it. Another way that this takes place is in the form of gossip. Gossip is actually a form of what Jesus is talking about here. Um, and that is essentially running down other people behind their back by talking about them or what they're doing or things that you disagree about how they're living their life or raising their kids or spending their money or whatever the case might be. Um, and here's, here's another one. This is a little bit of a, little bit of a Christian-y way that we actually engage in the sin of gossip and slandering of other people. Uh, and sometimes we can dress it up a little bit and we can say, we really need to pray for Elaine because she is doing whatever, right? Or going through whatever situation or making whatever decisions. That's kind of a Christian-y way of dressing up a form of gossip. It's great to pray for other people, but don't use the prayer chain as a way of talking bad about what other people are doing in their lives. Bless them, lift them up, pray for them, but don't criticize and slander. And that's what Jesus is talking about, particularly here. So when it comes to the office of a judge, we talked about somebody who's actually acting in that position. That person upholds standards. The same is true in our modern legal criminal system, right? A judge looks at the law, says, you broke the law, here's the repercussions, essentially. And there, there's a lot of other uh, you know, legal ways that judges operate, um, you know, fiscal law and, and a variety of things. But it's basically a judge is appointed to uphold a standard and to point out when people have not held themselves to that standard by their actions. So Moses himself in the Old Testament appointed judges because basically he was overwhelmed. He couldn't handle all of the issues that people were bringing to him constantly. So he appointed judges that knew the law, that knew God's intent in the law, and could take cases that other people, maybe they had beef with each other, business deals gone bad, whatever the case might be, they could bring those cases to the judges that Moses had appointed, and they would make a determination about what the outcome of that case would be, and that way taking some of the burden off of Moses, who was feeling overwhelmed. So that's another example of how judges work in the Bible. Um, and again, separating between criticizing gossip slander and the judge who upholds standards and makes determinations for people. In the book of James, um, and I'm going to read this verse twice because I liked a little bit different wording in two different translations. Um, it just helps you think about it in a little bit different way. The book of James really underscores what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7, about not criticizing or not running down other people. So James 4.11 in, let's see, first in New Living, I believe, he says, don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you're criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether or not it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? That's precisely what Jesus 
is talking about in that particular passage. So um, let's look at this again. That was New Living. Let's look at it in NIV because the wording is just a little bit different. Here James says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it but sitting in judgment of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So similar, I mean, the same concept comes across with a little bit different wording. Um, and I particularly like in the NIV the use of the word slander. Because that, that reminds me that when I'm talking badly about somebody else, I'm slandering them. I'm actually damaging their reputation. And that's what Jesus says, don't do that. And James says, definitely don't do that. Because who are you to judge when God himself is the judge? And like we saw, Jesus, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but throughout his ministry, acted in that role as a judge. So then, here in, in James, he says there is one judge and one lawgiver. So that goes back to our verse in Isaiah that we started with, where it says there will be, the Lord will be our judge, and the Lord will be our lawgiver. So that's the second part of this. Before entering the promised land, God gave the law, a big block of the law, to the people of Israel before they went in and occupied the land that he had promised for them. And this is the Torah, or the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Um, and especially... Um, Leviticus and Numbers and parts of Deuteronomy are really the, the big blocks where God gives the law. And there is a lot there because God outlines how you live your life and how you harvest your crops and what you wear and how you treat people from other countries and um, the ceremonial law, which was implemented by the priest in the operation of the tabernacle and then later the temple. So all of these are contained in the Torah, in the book of the law. That God gives. And a couple of verses that I'd like to draw from Deuteronomy, um, because Deuteronomy also has a lot of unique tie-ins to Jesus' ministry. When Jesus is tempted by the devil, he responds to the devil's temptations every time with scripture. And I don't know if you know this, but each one of those is a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy. So I want to look at Deuteronomy, particularly thinking about Jesus' ministry and the Sermon on the Mount. So the emphasis in Deuteronomy 4.1, again, this is right before the people are going into the promised land, coming out of the wilderness wanderings. Moses, speaking as the voice of God, says, And now, O Israel, listen carefully to these laws I teach you, and obey them if you want to live and enter into and possess the land given you by the Lord God of your ancestors. Do not add other laws or subtract from these. Just obey them, for they are from the Lord your God. So Moses underscoring that the law comes from God. Why? Because God is the lawgiver. So if the Lord is our judge, and we see Jesus acting in that role, and the Lord is our lawgiver, we see Jesus acting in that role as well because he adds to, he actually adds to the law of Moses and wants people to examine their hearts because he, 
he actually says to his audience, because your hearts are hard, you have to be reminded of the law. So here's how it works. The law is a standard. If there's no standard, then there's no breaking the standard because the standard just doesn't exist. It's people just doing whatever they want. Um, and we'll actually talk about this a little bit on Tuesday because in our Bible study on Tuesday, we'll be looking at the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, several times in there, it says there was no king, and so people did whatever they thought was right in their heart. So the law is designed to keep people from just doing whatever they think is right in their heart, is to keep people on track with a standard. So what Paul says is that the law was given to us to reveal our sin. Because again, if there's no point of comparison against a standard, then nobody knows if you're breaking the standard, because there is no standard, right? If there's no law, nobody knows if you're breaking the law. So that was one of the reasons why God gave the law. He also wanted the people of Israel to live in certain ways, to act in certain ways, to worship in certain ways, and so all of that is outlined in the law. But Paul, Paul kind of sums all of that up in saying that the law was given to reveal our sin. So God is our judge, God is our lawgiver, and Jesus himself works in those roles and in those offices as well. By giving the law to the people of Israel, God also called his chosen people to be completely set apart. So what we see in the laws of the Torah is God calling his people to live in ways that are totally different than any of their contemporary societies that lived around them. Totally different because God has this new standard that's called holiness. God's standard is holiness because God is the ultimately holy and supreme being in the universe. So that's also why God gave the law was to establish this standard, this way of living that would separate the people of Israel, his chosen people, from any of their peers and from any of the contemporary societies that lived around them because he wanted them to be set apart. And that's what holy means. Holy means like dedicated and pure and completely set apart to this purpose, which is worshiping God. So ultimately, the people of Israel would worship God by following the law. And this is what God had in mind for them to do. And in so doing, give glory to him and to be set apart to him, very different than the nations and societies that lived around them. So back to the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Jesus says, don't misunderstand why I have come. It isn't to cancel the laws of Moses and the warnings of the prophets. No, I came to fulfill them and to make them all come true. With all the earnestness I have, I say every law in the book will continue until its purpose is achieved. So what we see Jesus saying there is that if God is our lawgiver and Jesus is God, then Jesus is our lawgiver and he is the culmination of the law that was given in the Torah. He is the, the fulfillment. He's the highest expression of what the law in the Torah was given for. And that's why we are not held to the same standards today as the people of Israel were a thousand years 
before the coming of Christ because Christ himself has established a new law and has fulfilled and brought to culmination the old law. And that's why we call it the Old and New Testament, right? In the, in the Bible, that's just common speech. But I have Hebrew friends, that Messianic Hebrews, that refer to Old Testament and the Renewed Testament or covenant or a testament is a witness, right? God renewed his relationship with all the people that he had created by sending the, th the second person of the Trinity, God himself in human form, Jesus Christ, to live and work and act on the earth. And in so doing, Christ fulfilled the old law and established the new law that says you have to open your heart before God. If you accept his grace and forgiveness and live by God's standards, this is the new law or the renewed covenant, the renewed testament or witness to God's holiness. That's the new standard of living is your heart. Not only that, so not only is Jesus our judge, not only is he the lawgiver and the establisher of the new law, but he also acts in the role of a priest. And remember that the ceremonial law was established for the operation and worship that was happening in the tabernacle and in the temple uh, throughout the history of the people of Israel. And what would happen is, in the law, there was not just standards of living established. So it's not just, you have to do this, you have to do this, you can't do this, you can't eat shrimp and pork and whatever, all the stuff that's in the law, right? Although that is there, the intent of it is not necessarily to just hammer people over the head with the law. But what I see in the law is that actually God provides a means of grace throughout the establishment of the law in that in every circumstance where somebody is not following the law in the Old Testament, people of Israel, that is established for them, there is a means for them to reestablish relationship with the community and with God. God provides those methods by bringing a sacrifice and the sacrifice God accepts and atones for the wrongdoing that the individual did. And this works on both an individual level, a family level, and a national level. So once a year, the high priest would go into the most holy place of the tabernacle and would offer a sacrifice once a year for all the sins of all the people in the whole nation, thereby covering them and bringing the nation as a whole back into right standing and relationship with God. What the book of Hebrews tells us is that Jesus himself, who is God and is our judge and is our lawgiver, acts in the same role as that high priest. So not only is he the sacrifice that is given, but he is the priest that enacts that sacrifice for atonement for all of our sins. And in this case, it's not just the sins of a particular people group or of a particular nation or once a year for a particular time. But it's a sacrifice that's one time for all and for the sins of the whole world. Jesus enacts this in his earthly ministry. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, 
He entered into the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. One time for everyone, one time for all time, one time for all the sins of all the world. And that is the work that Jesus did as our judge, as our lawgiver. And then finally, we go back to that verse in Isaiah. This might be a little bit out of order. But again, back to Isaiah 33 and verse 22. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. Jesus himself, throughout his earthly ministry, continuously referenced to his disciples and to his audience the nearness of the kingdom. And he calls it the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Same, same thing, same concept. Especially in the book of Matthew, I think it's 18 times the phrase the kingdom of heaven is used. And what Jesus says is the kingdom of heaven is near. Kingdom of heaven is near. And in one sense, that could be taken in uh, an understanding of near in time. So that is, the kingdom of heaven is coming soon. And, and that would be a true application of that phrase. But you could also think of it near in terms of spatial relationship. And my father, who's been a Bible teacher for years and years, uses this analogy of imagine a stage that is set up for a drama. Shakespeare, whatever the case might be, right? You have this world that is invented on the stage that is the backdrop. So imagine that we live on the stage and we think that the world that we see is the setting that's in the, that's in the stage. And that's, that's this world. But what Jesus sees is that the kingdom of heaven is the real world that he wants us to live in because that's where we enter back into right relationship and right covenant with him. So imagine if you were to sort of punch through the paper that is the false world, that is the stage setting, and you punch through the paper and you discover that the real world is right there. That's kind of how you can think of Jesus saying, the kingdom of heaven is near. You just have to get past the temporary, the fake world, to the real world that God wants us to live in, which is the kingdom of heaven. So I think that's a good analogy as well. And in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is king. So we see, again, going back to our verse in Isaiah, that the Lord, Jesus, is our judge, is our lawgiver, and the Lord is our king. In Matthew 4.17, one of those early times when he says, from the time that he began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. I like that in uh, the NIV translation. Not just is near, but it has already come near. In Matthew 10.7, when Jesus sends his disciples out and commissions them to start telling other people about himself, he says, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. NIV again there. So the nearness of the kingdom of heaven is what Jesus wants us to take away from his, his presence and from his earthly ministry because he is the king of the kingdom of heaven. And in that way, 
fulfills the prophecy from Isaiah. So the fourth part of Isaiah 33 and verse 22 is that the Lord is our judge. We see Jesus acted as a judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. Jesus gave the law, fulfilled the law, sacrificed himself to culminate the law and to issue a new law, a new standard, the law of our hearts for us to live by, and that he is our king and preached that the kingdom of heaven, his kingdom, is very near, is right at hand. Because it is he, the Lord, who will save us. It is he who will save us. And that was the way that Jesus was able to fulfill this prophecy specifically, is that he does save us by the work that he did when he was living here in the world, acting in these roles, acting in these offices, but ultimately by his own sacrifice, going to the cross willingly, he enacted God's grace to save anyone who accepts it. All you have to do is reach out, reach out to that kingdom that's near and say, God, please save me. And the grace, the atonement that Christ worked on the cross can become yours immediately. It's only the servant king that can save us. For he had to willingly offer himself. And in that way, we see the fulfillment in Jesus of the role of both the sacrifice that we talked about. He sacrificed himself for the sins of the world, but then also acts as the priest of that sacrifice, offering himself before God for atonement for the sins of the world and for you and I. And only the high priest could do that. Jesus acts in that role as well and offers himself as the sacrifice as the king of the universe and as a human being who lived without sin, fulfilling the perfect sacrifice that could atone for all of the sins of the world. Um, Kim and the band, you guys can come back out here and we'll close with another song. Um, but in 1 John 2 and verse 2, John says, He himself, speaking of Jesus Christ, is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. And I just want you to think about the work that Christ performed. He did fulfill all of these roles as the judge and as the lawgiver and as the king. And he lives today and continues to fulfill those roles. But it was in his sacrifice of himself to attain the atonement for all of our sins that Christ the King sacrificed himself. And God accepts that sacrifice on our behalf in place of all of our sins now 2,000 years later because one time for all time, one time for all people. Jesus sacrificed himself in that way. So I'd like everyone just to concentrate on that for just a moment as we go into our final closing. As we think of Christ the judge, he does establish the standards that we have to live by. He does put that law in our hearts that tells us when 
we are and when we're not acting in the way that God has established his standards for us to live. Additionally, Christ is the lawgiver, and he speaks to the law of Moses and then actually adds some standards to the law of Moses because he says, your hearts are hard. If our hearts are hard, we're not looking to his sacrifice that he made. We're thinking of ourselves. We're going back to what we talked about at the beginning in criticizing and slandering other people, acting out that sin of pride, which thinks that we are the most important thing, that we know what's going on, we know what's right, we can do whatever we want, and that's what God says and what Jesus says, that's not the standard. That is not the standard of God's holy living, is to live in that sin of pride. So Christ the lawgiver tells us and puts the law on our hearts that says, you now have to live open and exposed to the Holy Spirit and to God himself all the time and repent from the sins and from the wrong things that we do to accept the grace and the forgiveness that Jesus himself enacted. And by being the king and sacrificing himself, he became the perfect sacrifice that only in that way, by both being the sacrifice and acting in the role of the high priest to offer the sacrifice which is accepted by God, only in that way could it atone one time for all the people and for all the sins of all the world. So thank you, Father, for the work that Jesus did. Thank you for the love and the grace that you enacted. Lord, thank you that Jesus willingly gave himself, for without that willingness, the sacrifice itself would have been voided as well. But Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice to you that you accept now on our behalf for all of our sin for all time. And Lord, help our hearts not to be hard, but to be open, to be listening to you, to be inviting to your Holy Spirit who now lives with us. Jesus gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit as well. And the Holy Spirit speaks into our lives your standard and speaks into our hearts your law, which now allows us to live in grace following you. Lord, thank you that that was enacted by the work